We can open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 9. Last week, we were in chapter 8, but we have turned the page here in Matthew 9 into a new chapter. In one sense, it's a little bit more of the same in Matthew. He continues this presentation of a string of stunning miracles Jesus performed. But in another sense, it's not more of the same because there is a distinct progression in what these miracles are revealing. And we've turned a chapter, so we'll do a quick big picture overview of where we are in Matthew's gospel. Started with Matthew 1 and 2. It's the birth narrative of Jesus. He's explaining the significance of his coming from his genealogy to his virgin birth. Matthew 3 focuses on the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist, his ministry, as well as the baptism of Jesus by John. And that marked the formal beginning to Christ's messianic ministry. From there, chapter 4, immediately we see Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Afterward, Matthew fast-forwards us to the arrest of John the Baptist. And at that point, Jesus withdraws to Galilee. That begins his Galilean ministry. And you see a summary of that time in Matthew 4, verse 23. It says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Well, summary of what he's doing so far, basically teaching, healing, teaching, healing. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God in word and then displaying the kingdom of God in deed. Now, after that, you go into chapters 5 through 7, which Matthew gives us a great sampling now of that teaching. What kind of teaching was Jesus doing during this time? And, And so we get the Sermon on the Mount, the way that passage ends at the end of chapter 7 is significant. Chapter 7, verses 28-29, after this huge sermon, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as one of their scribes. Matthew draws to the surface the unique authority of Jesus, which came out in his teaching. He preached the word with divine authority, and on that hinge, We get chapters 8 and 9, where Matthew now aims to further display that authority, not in his teaching, but also in his his doing, his actions, and specifically his his healing. Remember that summary, Jesus was teaching, healing, teaching, healing. Well, now it's time for Matthew to actually tell us, give us some examples of the, the works Jesus was performing and how he displayed the power of the kingdom in working wonders. And so that's what we get here in Matthew 8 and 9. This is now a record of nine miraculous deeds Jesus performed, kind of strung together. And they all evidence his divine authority, which has a lot to say about his divine identity, not to mention his messianic identity. Chapter 8 starts with three healings, a leper, centurion servant, Peter's mother-in-law, showing Jesus has total authority over disease. This is followed by an interlude, which shows he has total authority over disciples. Then you get the momentous account of the stilling of the storm at sea, showing he has total authority over disaster. And then chapter 8 concludes with Jesus casting out this legion of demons, displaying his total authority over demons. You can see from from disease to disciples to disaster to demons, Jesus has authority over all. But we're not done. As we turn into chapter 9, there's more to show. He even has total authority over death. And we get a glimpse of that today in our passage, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. This is another healing account, 
but it's not about the healing. It's about death, namely spiritual death, because this is the first time we witness Jesus forgiving sins. He has total authority over sin, which is to say spiritual death. And so later in this chapter, when we see Jesus wield authority even over physical death, raising Jairus' daughter, we should no longer be surprised. I mean, all things are under his lordship. But the passage that opens chapter 9 is a real mountain peak. What is our deepest problem? Our eternal problem, the root problem to all suffering in the world. It is sin and the separation from God it brings. And Jesus came above all to deal with that problem. And he's going to show that in in preview form in this text. So you could say this is a, a preliminary showing of Jesus dealing with our greatest problem, answering and addressing our greatest need, Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. So let's read this passage now. Next one up, Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Listen along. It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, if you are here last week, you might notice this text is somewhat similar in that we have all these different groups, like like actors in a play. At the end of chapter 8, this story had these five groups, the demoniacs, the demons, the, the herd of swine, the townspeople, and Jesus himself here five groups. There's this paralytic, his friends, the scribes, the crowd, and Jesus. There is a difference, though. In the previous account, we saw how everyone else did all the speaking and carried all the action, and Jesus just kind of standing there. He only says one word in the whole account, go, and with that, this, this legion of demons is cast out. And this accentuates how effortless his power was. It was inherent in his person. In today's passage, it's pretty much the opposite in the sense that this is like a one-man show, all centering on Jesus. In Matthew's account here, now Jesus carries the action. He does all the talking. These other groups, the friends, the paralytic, the scribes, Matthew gives us just like the briefest recollection of what they actually do. He doesn't even mention this, the big detail in the other gospels, how these friends tore a hole open in the roof to lower their friend down to Jesus. Matthew, that's not important to what he's trying to relate here. Now, similarly, from the paralytic to the scribes, none of their speech is recorded. Rather, we see Jesus speaking for them as he reads their thoughts and their hearts. And I believe this is incidental, but intentional. Matthew, as all the gospel writers do, under inspiration, so bringing out these true accounts, but with a purpose and communicating to the church. And the way Matthew relates this episode shows us that he, he wants us just to focus on Jesus. 
It's not about the details. It's about Christ and specifically his authority to forgive sins. We must come to see Jesus by faith as the only answer to sin. And so to help us see Jesus, we're going to look at the two halves of this text. Really can divide it into two. The first half where Jesus sees belief. The second half where Jesus sees unbelief. It's really about what Jesus sees and what we should see in him. So that being said, we can start with, with the first point. Jesus sees belief. In the first pair of verses, Jesus sees belief. Back to verse 1. It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. So verse 1 picks up where chapter 8 left off, which, if you recall, was this sad, anticlimactic ending where Jesus was rejected. On the eastern shore of Galilee, in this Gentile region, Jesus showed his compassion, his power. The townspeople there, though, wanted nothing to do with him, and they begged him just to depart. They sent him away. And Jesus obliged, he gets in the boat, they cross the sea, and chapter 9, verse 1, takes us back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, back to the western shore. Thankfully, there was no storm during this crossing, as far as we know. I, I can bet the disciples weren't too happy, because they were the ones who had to row all night long to get to the eastern shore, and almost as soon as they get off the boat, they're forced back on the boat, and they have to row to get back to the, the other side. I, I would strongly doubt Jesus did any rowing. So off they go, though. They arrive back at their destination. Verse 1 says Jesus came into his own city. What city would that be? If you're thinking Nazareth, you'd be wrong. At this point, Jesus has already been rejected by his original hometown of Nazareth. They tried to throw him off a cliff. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So because of that, he's already relocated his Galilean home base to Capernaum on the northwestern shore of Galilee. That's something Matthew told us back in chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus didn't have his own home, meaning like a house. You recall Matthew 8, 20, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't really have any place to call his own once his ministry began. Nope, no home, no house. But at least while he was in Capernaum, it appears he took up residence with Peter, that he mostly stayed at Peter's house This is where earlier he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And it seems to be most likely this next event takes place in this same home. And that's verse 2. They're in this home now, and it says they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. The primary subject of this passage is this paralytic. refers to someone who is paralyzed. Could be from a spinal injury. Could be from a congenital ailment. This man is lying on a bed. Don't think of like a modern mattress. This would have been like a cot or a stretcher. Ambulances still use stretchers. It's the most effective way to to transport someone who can't move on their own. And so that was this man. He's too sick for him, paralyzed to uh, to move around. He's paralyzed. He had to be carried around. Mark adds a lot of small details, one of which is that he was carried by four men, one at each corner, suggesting that this man can't really bear any of his own weight to be like physically carried by four guys from place to place. We don't know this for sure, but you kind of get the sense he might even be a quadriplegic. That level of paralysis has to be torture. You may remember the old actor Christopher Reeve. 
is the actor in the original Superman movies, and he captured America's imagination originally as, as the Man of Steel, this is like invulnerable superhero. But in real life, if you remember back in 1995, he suffered an equestrian accident. He was thrown off his horse, landed on his head, shattered his first and second vertebrae, and became paralyzed from the neck down uh, ever since for the rest of his life. He couldn't even breathe without a ventilator, and that would be the reality for the rest of his life. He had become completely de- dependent on others just to move, to eat, to wash, and just the dichotomy of the image of Superman versus now in his paralyzed state. And that has to be a life of profound psychological suffering. Your body, you don't feel anything anymore, but there's still a lot of suffering involved. The only mercy was that he had this electric wheelchair he could pilot around with his mouth. But like for all human history before that, there's nothing you can do. You have to be literally carried. You can't move one yard unless people carry you. You Just kind of think about that. And so it was for this paralytic. I mean, no no doubt he was made to suffer for however many years this was. I mean, it's a good thing he had these four friends. And these were some good friends. There's a little side story here. It's not Matthew's point, so we won't dwell on it. But these were some good friends. They were willing to be the arms and the legs of this man, taking him where he needs to go. And on this occasion, he needed to go to Jesus. Jesus had been in Capernaum before. He's already done some healing nights there. He's performed some mass healings in this town, likely in the same house. We learned about this back in chapter 8, verse 16. After healing Peter's mother-in-law, it says, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. And evidently, this paralytic couldn't get to Jesus on that occasion. His friends weren't available. He could not go on his own. But news of Jesus spread fast. Tales of his miraculous healing swirled around Capernaum, really the whole region. People were coming from miles away to see Jesus. And when this paralyzed man heard these stories, I mean, it's it's obvious. He, He gained something he never had before, which was hope. I mean, even today, there's, there's almost zero hope for someone paralyzed like this. Back then, there was zero hope. You have no hope for change or for healing. But it only takes hearing a few stories of Christ's miracles to believe anything is possible. And so gaining hope, at some point, this paralytic also gained a type of faith where he believed. It's not like he had the full revelation of the person and the work of Jesus, but he genuinely believed that Christ had God's power. If he could just get to Jesus, he, he would be healed. And whoever these friends are, it, it seems they believe too. Because verse 2, it says Jesus seeing their faith. It's in the plural. It's referring to the friends, not excluding the paralytic. But all of these men had come to believe that in Jesus was divine power. And so they're happily carrying their friend to go see Jesus because... They believe only he could help him. Now, before we consider what Jesus says in response in verse 2, I still think it's nice to round out some of the details that were told in Mark and Luke. We learned in Mark and Luke this, this was a day of teaching, that people had come to hear Jesus teach, and it was max attendance. It appears the whole town gathered at the door, and once again, most likely this was the door of Peter's house. 
The house itself was packed to the gills. There's like a standing room only crowd. Mark 2 verse 2 adds that the crowd was spilling out of the house, out of the doorway. just couldn't fit everybody. So you can imagine by the time the paralytic and his friends arrive, this is what they see. They see this scene. You have all these this, this throng of people bursting out of the door. They instantly know there's no way they're getting inside. I mean, they're carrying a guy. They, they're not going to make it through this crowd to get inside. Their sole mission was just to get their friend to Jesus. And as far as they know, this might be their last chance. But this crowd is way too thick. At this point, they could have just turned back in defeat. The the door was closed, so to speak. But they didn't take this closed door as a reason to stop. They persisted in this type of faith, reasoning that, look, if the door to Jesus is closed, we're just going to have to tear open the roof. And that is literally what they did. Many ancient houses in that region had stairs on the outside of the house going up to the roof because the roof was a place of refuge, a place to cool off in the evening. And so one way or another, these men get up on the roof and then they start digging. Luke says they first remove some tiles, then they dig through the clay or the sod and they, they start making an opening. And you just have to kind of picture what this would have been like from the inside. I mean, Jesus is teaching, his disciples, and this crowd are gathered around. It's got to be dark inside. Maybe there's a few windows, a few lamps, but it can't be that bright inside. Then all of a sudden, you see like a ray of light burst through the ceiling, and then another, and another dust and debris starts falling down on the people beneath. I'm sure they're thinking like, what's going on? I think, I think someone's tearing a hole in the roof. Like, why would anyone do that? If, if this was Peter's house... I wouldn't be surprised if he was getting upset. But soon enough, these men tore a human-sized hole in the roof. And I I can only just imagine that the crowd sat in a stunned silence just watching Jesus to see how would he respond to this absurd situation. And all this is taking place, Luke tells us, pretty much right above where Jesus was. So you can't, like, ignore it. And eventually, something comes down through the roof. It's a man. A man is being lowered down on this stretcher with ropes from the roof. And he he comes down right at the feet of Jesus, Luke says. He touches down right where he wanted to be. And so, again, it's not like Jesus can't ignore this. Like, what's he going to do? Sometimes in church there's distractions, and I do my best just to ignore them. But if something like is coming down right in front of the pulpit, you're going to have to say something. (laughs) And so is Jesus going to be outraged? Like, how, how dare you interrupt me? Or is he going to rebuke? Like, get, get these intruders out of here. Have them pay for their property damage. But no, you know there's, there's not going to be any of that. There's just tender mercy. There's compassion. There's love. Again, the middle of verse 2. It says, of Jesus, seeing their faith, much like that Roman centurion back in chapter 8, Jesus, he, he sees their faith. He's taken aback by a display of great faith. I mean, this, this paralytic and his friends so hoped in Jesus that they would stop at nothing to get to him. He, you could say, you know, respected that. There's no record of any speech coming from the paralytic or his friends, but they didn't need to say anything. They were showing their faith by their actions. And Jesus sees them. He sees their faith. And so he says, verse 2, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, 
son, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus quickly dispels any fear or shame this man may have felt. And look, that's understandable. His actions came with risk. I mean, what would people think of him? How would people treat him? How would Jesus respond to him? Might he be rejected? But Jesus says, take courage. It means take heart. It's a word to eliminate fear. Whatever fear of ridicule or rejection or shame this man may have been feeling, Jesus is saying it's not needed. Take courage, son, a term of endearment and affection. Like Jesus is clearly moved to compassion on account of this man who suffered so much throughout his life. And so he says to him, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And this means what you think it means. It's the classic word for sin, hamartia, which means missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark, falling short of God's standard, transgressing his law. Classic word for forgiven, afiemi, forgiveness. It's where your sins are, are sent away. The word is used of Jesus sometimes where he dismisses or sends away the crowds. Our problem before God is that every single sin we've committed against his will, it's like they stand against us. They're bearing witness, testifying we're guilty. We deserve punishment. But Jesus offers forgiveness where he he dismisses all these witnesses, all these sins. They're sent away. They're no longer able to accuse you. The charges are all dropped. We'll have more to say about forgiveness later. But first, we need to appreciate how big of a a curveball statement this is. Because everything we've seen so far, everything the people had seen so far, led them to expect one thing. When this guy comes before Jesus, what will Jesus say? We all expect him to say, get up and walk. Like the first thing he says, get up and walk. But he doesn't. He says, your sins are forgiven. We expect this to be yet another healing miracle. And surely that's what this paralytic was hoping for. You know, what Jesus says here is so unexpected, your sins are forgiven. It's led some people to believe that this paralytic, he must have been going to Jesus for forgiveness. I mean, he, he probably led a sinful life. His sinful life probably led to his paralysis ever since he's been guilt-ridden. So he's going to Jesus for forgiveness. And while that's like possible, nothing in the text suggests this. That would be more reading back into the text how we think of Jesus on this side of the cross. But look, in that moment, the, all these people in these crowds, they're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. He's a teacher. He's a healer. Is he a prophet? Yes. Something more? Maybe. But just the most natural reading of this text is that this paralytic was desperately trying to see Jesus because he wanted to walk again. And of course, that's not wrong. But when Jesus says, instead, your sins are forgiven, it's meant to come as a shock, a jolt. Like, that's unexpected. But I think there's a better way to explain this curveball. You know, Jesus did not play his hand right away. He didn't come advertising the full picture of his identity as the Christ and the Son of God, nor the full picture of his work as making atonement by dying on the cross. He didn't advertise that on day one. It's only near the end of his ministry, and really only to the 12, did he finally start revealing who he is, what he came to do. 
why is that? Why, why did he keep his cards close to the chest? It's because if he put all of his cards on the table on day one, humanly speaking, it would have led to a, his premature death. The people were under the spell of the religious leaders who had terribly corrupted Judaism and the scriptures. That included their expectations of the Messiah. The rulers expected the Messiah to be this conquering king who would further their interests. So to think that the Messiah would be God come down in human flesh, who would then die on a cross by the Romans, was to all the Jews the, the biggest stumbling block, as Paul later affirms. And just to make matters worse, this Messiah completely rejected them and all their traditions and rules. It's no wonder that even the little Jesus did reveal to them had them already wanting him dead for a long time. But to those with eyes to see and ears to hear, he was slowly but surely revealing more of the true nature of his person and work. And that's what we're getting here in Matthew 8 and 9. With every healing, with every miracle, he's showing something more about himself. And as we see here in Matthew 9, all these miracles are building up to something. They're pointing to some greater truth about Jesus, that he did not just come to teach, to heal, to work wonders. He came to redeem fallen man. And physical healing is not good enough because it doesn't address our ultimate problem. Sickness is not our ultimate problem. Rather, Jesus healed to show his power, proving he's the only one who can restore what is broken but look, the brokenness of our bodies and of creation are merely symptoms of a deeper brokenness, which is that of our relationship with our God. Our root problem is sin. And because of sin, our souls are cut off from God. We have only eternal death waiting for us. Like, what good is healing the body if the soul is still damned? But the real reason for which Jesus came was what? We, the reader, have known this from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and it was announced at his birth. Matthew one twenty one. you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sickness. No, he will save his people from their sins. That's why he came. He came ultimately to deal with our sin problem. He came to pay for and put away all our transgressions that we might be reconciled to God. This is the real good news of the gospel throughout. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul defines the gospel. He says it's that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. John the Baptist knew this. He said in John 129 of, of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 1 Peter 2.24 says that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is the, the real work Jesus came to do. And we receive the benefits of that work one way, by faith. Peter preaches Acts 10.43. He says, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That is the good news. By virtue of his person as the divine Messiah, he could accomplish that work in full on behalf of all of his people. 
and that now all who repent and believe in him can be saved, forgiven. And so getting back to our text, when Jesus tells this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, like we know that the cross has not come. The disciples don't even know about the cross at this point. But what's happening here, this is like Jesus, you know, just showing us one card from his hand. He's showing us a little bit of what's to come. He's giving us, you might say, a sneak peek of the real work he came to do. The work that would secure our physical restoration in resurrection. That work that would secure a new heavens, new earth. But it all would start with the cross. Jesus knows that total forgiveness must be purchased. That our sin debt has got to be paid. And hey, it will come at a cost. The cost of his own perfect life. He knows that. That day will come. But for now, he is content to, you might say, preview the good news. And so he sees this man. He totally bypasses his physical need. And he addresses his deeper spiritual need. And offers him and grants him forgiveness. Even if this man never walked again. I mean, to to be forever reconciled to God. That's all that really matters. He'll have new legs in the eternal kingdom anyway. But his soul needs to be reconciled to his God. This is what Jesus can do. This is what what only Jesus can do. And this is what Jesus does when he sees belief. And I pray that when Jesus looks at you... That's what he sees, faith, belief, whereby your sins are forgiven, whereby you are made whole before God. But that's not what Jesus always sees. We need to dwell more on our response. But I think first, let's consider this, the second half of this passage, where Jesus sees unbelief. First, Jesus sees belief, verse 2, seeing their faith. Now, verses 3 through 7, Jesus sees unbelief because we're told about the response of these other people in the crowd. Verse 3, it says, Some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. So next we encounter the scribes. We've seen them before. This was like the lawyer class of Israel. But don't think civil law. This was religious law. They were the teachers, the interpreters of the law of God to which, you know, they added all their rules, all their traditions as part of it. Most of the scribes were Pharisees, and every time we encounter them, usually they're in opposition to Jesus, because he had very little tolerance for their rules and traditions, which they used to hypocritically overturn the actual word of God. And this passage here in Matthew 9 is the first instance in Matthew's gospel we see their opposition to Jesus. It's not going to be their last In fact, most of the rest of the miracles in chapter 9 come now with opposition. Not everyone loves him. There's now opposition. Now, at this point, though, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're still investigating Jesus. They've heard all these stories. They're coming to check him out for themselves. In fact, the parallel in Luke says that on this day, several scribes and Pharisees were in attendance in this house. It says they came from every village of Galilee and Judea, and even some came from as far as Jerusalem. We feel like this is a formal delegation sent to investigate this guy, Jesus. And in this first instance of opposition, they don't say anything. Right? They make no verbal statements. Their opposition starts in their hearts. Something verse 4 makes clear. As Jesus says, it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, 
Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? They don't voice their opposition to Jesus yet. I mean, they will, but for now, what's setting them off in their hearts is, is Jesus saying to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. I mean, to them, this sounds like blasphemy. And Mark and Luke add further what, what they further think in their hearts. You know, who can forgive sins but God alone? And in this, they're right. They're right to understand that remitting sins and removing guilt is a divine work. It's like Isaiah 43, 25. God himself says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And our sins are before God. Only he has the, the authority, the prerogative to, to forgive. For any man to take this divine prerogative on himself, that would be tantamount to blasphemy. For any man to assume the role and the work of God, they should be upset. But the problem is, which should already be clear to them, that Jesus is not just a man. We've already seen that throughout chapter 8, and now he's going to give these scribes a front row seat to the fact that he actually has the divine authority to do this because he is God in flesh. And so verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. And Jesus affirms that they did not have belief in their hearts. They had unbelief, they had resistance in their hearts. They were thinking evil. It's a phrase that speaks of you know, calling something to mind, but with an agitated spirit. It's like they were, they were fuming on the inside, and I'm sure it showed on the outside. It may not be that Jesus relied on supernatural knowledge to know what they were thinking in their hearts. It could very well be, like, it's pretty obvious on their faces that they were just upset when Jesus said this. Either way, he knew their hearts were rooted in unbelief. Despite all they had seen and heard, they still were not accepting of him, believing in him. Still, Jesus is not going to leave them without a witness. He will give them many witnesses. And here's one, verse 5, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. It's obvious. It's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's unverifiable. Like you, you can't prove it one way or another. Like There have been many people and cults throughout hif- history who have claimed the ability to, to forgive sins. And can you prove them wrong? Like How do you measure this? But very few people dare to claim the authority to forgive, or rather to heal quadriplegics. Because the second you actually tell that person, get up and walk, Everyone will know you're a phony when that person does not get up and walk. And so it's, it's much easier just to say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus is not a phony. He really does have the authority to forgive sins. And so he's going to prove it in verse 6. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up. Pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. In one sense, it's, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. In another sense, I'm like both statements are equally hard. Both statements are beyond human ability. Both statements require divine power and authority. But for Jesus, both are equally easy because he fully possesses divine power and authority. 
what is impossible for man is effortless for him. And so just as readily as he said, your sins are forgiven, he says, get up, pick, your, pick up your bed, and go home. And, and he does. It just happens. This is a divine miracle of healing. Just in an instant, this man's severed spinal cord regrew, or whatever the case might be. His nervous system was remade. His muscle atrophy was undone. I mean, instantly he could tell something changed. The feeling would have returned to his fingers, his toes, his hands, his feet. It's as if no time passed at all. He springs up. He has not forgotten how to walk. And in obedience to this Lord, he's happy to put on display his newfound ability to walk. And he does not need to be carried anymore. He can carry his own bed and go home. And in obedience to this Lord, he does. How did his friends respond up on the roof? How did the scribes respond? The text doesn't say. Again, there's no record of speech from anyone but Jesus. I think it's safe to assume his friends were rejoicing. I think it's safe to assume the scribes were still rejecting. And as this chapter continues and beyond, they're only going to increase in their hostility to Jesus. And despite witnessing this miracle firsthand, hearing all of his teaching, they will keep rejecting him. They will eventually crucify him. But for now, this is one of the clearest claims and proofs of the deity of Jesus. It is true that only God has the power and the authority to forgive sins. Like Psalm 103, 12 says what God does. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Forgiveness is always presented as a work of God. But as we now see forgiveness as a work of Jesus, he wields this work and he actually accomplishes forgiveness by dying on the cross. I mean, it says all that needs to be said of him. Like we learn in chapter 1, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And he came that we might all have forgiveness. All who repent and believe in him will. And that is what you must do now. We've seen how Jesus sees belief, how Jesus sees unbelief. In response, we are meant to now see Jesus and believe. And we can call that a third point. See Jesus and believe. The passage ends with the response of the crowd, verse 8. It says, but when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Again, in this account, it's just he's just showing one card. Just one card. He's just giving a sliver of his power. But as the veil of his humanity is lifted ever so slightly, like the, the light that comes through is, is blinding. It leaves people awestruck. Word for uh, phobeo, from which we get a phobic, it's usually translated fear. Sometimes this is the type of fear that makes you run away. Other times, this is the type of fear that makes you bow down. That's the case here. This is reverence, which is how people are meant to respond to the presence of God. And such reverential fear needs to be expressed, and we call that worship. And hence it says the people glorified God. They, they were blown away by the miracle they saw. There's no explanation for this. It has to be that God has given his authority to men. They recognize this an authority issue, and he's given it to men. 
They see in Jesus the power and the authority of God, and they give glory to God. Now, again, we know the crowd does not have it all figured out yet when it comes to the, the full person, the full work of Jesus. This, this Jesus guy, he, he looks like a man, but he teaches the word of God. He performs the works of God. He wields the authority of God. What they've witnessed so far leads them to give glory to God, and that's not wrong. At the very least, Matthew is showing us, contrary to the response of the scribes, that the crowd that day, their response was at least on the right trajectory. And as they would come into the fuller knowledge of the person and work of Christ, his divine person, his atoning work, it would take their response even further for those who were believing. They would give glory to the Son as well. We now, we live on the other side of this, the other side of the cross, this whole passage, and we now see the full revelation of who Jesus is, the full revelation of what he did, and so we are meant to enter into the fullness of that response. Again, the fact that Matthew omits so many details of this account, I really think shows us he's just trying to focus our eyes on one thing. It's just Jesus and his authority to forgive sins. We are meant to now see this Jesus and believe. It's like one of the main messages of Christianity is that God has given his power and authority to a man. But it's not just any man. It's the God-man, God the Son, Christ Jesus. And by this God-man alone, by faith in him, you can be saved. Saved from what? Not, Not merely from sickness, but from sin and the penalty it brings. You remember, what what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is transgressing God's perfect will, which we've all done many times. Our ledger is very long. It says in 1 Timothy 1.9, The law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. That's all of us. All are defiled, guilty, condemned, And that comes with consequences before a perfectly holy God. And Paul says this of those who refused, he says, to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.9. He says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. We are meant to see Jesus and believe. That can't happen. That won't happen until you first see yourself, see your sin. And do you understand your real problem? It's not just with your body. It's sicknesses. It's ailments. Those are just merely symptoms of a cursed world. That curse, however, was brought on by sin, which is our root problem, a problem before our creator God and with our debt being infinite, we have no hope of paying it back. The only hope we have is somehow that this God might just forgive us. They might wipe out our debt. It's something he, he says he does. Like he says to the Israel in Isaiah 1.18. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This is a forgiving God, but we know this, for God to just let the guilty go free would be unjust. That would be wrong. 
His perfect justice demands satisfaction. And payment has to be made. Thankfully, this God accepts substitutes. And that is why Jesus came. He came to die in our place. Pay the debt for us that our debt, our sin debt might be wiped away. Recall one of my favorite passages, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's like Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That this divine son was sent to be the lamb of God to take away our sins. He's, He's our only hope. He's your only hope. So do you see him for who he is, Lord, Savior? And do you believe? You must. From a human perspective, how you respond to this Jesus is a decision of eternal importance. He is Savior. But by virtue of the same divine authority he has, he's also judge. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5, 21 through 24. John 5, 21, he says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. But know this, if if you don't know him as Savior, you, you will know him as judge. But the good news is this judge actually has the authority to send away all your sins by the work he himself finished. When you stop your busy lives for a moment and actually consider your life, your sins, all that which you've done, your conscience knows, and you think about a holy God that you will face one day, you are meant to respond like Peter after the miracle of the miraculous catch, Luke 5.8. It says that Peter fell down at the feet of Jesus and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I mean, upon witnessing the power of and the authority of God in Jesus. Peter immediately became overwhelmed with his own unworthiness. I I don't belong here. I don't belong before you. His guilt, his shame, his sin drowned him. But Jesus would not let him sink. I mean, this is why he came. He came to touch the unclean, to pick up sinners, to clothe them with his righteousness. This he will do for you as you see him and believe. And so we'll we'll say, as the apostles say, believe in him today for the forgiveness of your sins. Today can be that day of salvation. When you do, when, when you know that weight 
is lifted. The burden is gone. The debt is paid. You will know his peace and joy. You will live in it. You'll tell others about it. And you will glorify God and his son for it each and every day into eternity. And let that be our response now together. Let's glorify him. Our gracious God, we, we do glorify you together as a church body this morning with one voice for who you are, for what you have done in making us and in redeeming us. And you did that by sending your son, God the Son, to, to be our Savior. We stand before you, all of us, none without sin, all with guilt, more than we could ever repay. And we are unworthy to be in your presence. We should be cast away, for we are unclean, defiled, unholy. But in your great love, you made this plan, this way of redemption. We are thankful that your justice accepts substitutes, and only one was found, your, your perfect son, who came and took on flesh, became like one of the sons of Adam, that he might stand in our place, stand under the waterfall of your righteous wrath, and, and just drink that whole cup for us. That is what he did on the cross. By virtue of his perfect person, he could die in our place and, and, and pay all that debt for us. We're grateful for this. We need to remember these truths, not let them grow stale in our minds or hearts. This is the source of our life, the source of our joy, the source of our peace, the source of our worship and discipleship. And so and reinvigorate us now with the truth. And for any here this morning who do not know you, have not turned to Christ, I pray that their conscience does bear witness and testify against them, that their sins cry out, convicting them. They have problem. They have trouble. They are dead before you. But hope is found. The same judge who would convict can release them this morning as they look upon him in faith and trust him, yield their life, their heart over to him. They can be forgiven and made new and granted eternal life. We pray for them. Convict them. Fill the rest of us with joy in believing, and may that turn into our worship. In Christ's name we pray.